So welcome to episode 10 of Just a Chat With. Today we're sitting down with Michael Wolfe in his lovely home in, here in London. Um, Michael is a world-renowned graphic designer and consultant on brand and corporate identity. In 1965, Michael partnered, partnered with Wally Allens to create Wolfe Allens, which is a brand consultancy with offices in London, New York City, and San Francisco. Suffice to say, their client list includes a very, very long list of iconic brands. Michael is a visiting professor at the University of Arts in London and a senior fellow of the Royal College of Art. He's also the former president of both the DNAD and CSD, and he is also an RDI, which is the highest accolade for designers in the UK. Apparently. <laughs> <laughs> Until now. Until now. <laughs> Until now. Michael, thanks so much for having us and having us in your home. That's a pleasure. Yeah. It's well, so, I, so far. So, Sorry so for we could only it spoil out. it from here. <laughs> um, so I suppose um, just to kick us off, um, can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing these days, what you're working on at the moment? Um, that's a really interesting question because I was asking myself that this morning when I woke up anticipating you being here. Um, and I don't want to be, I don't want to sound too obscure in the kind of answers that I give you. But in a way, this is the truth for me. It's trying to battle with the habits of thinking that I know what I'm doing when I'm designing. Because, you know, when you think you know what you're doing, you're probably repeating yourself. Sure. And since every client as an individual people or as an individual person is different and businesses are different, um, you can't have a system of helping them explain themselves or project themselves, mm. which um, repeats itself. So you, you're always looking for what is it about them and how to let that out in some way. Sure. So that's always a struggle for me, you know, because I, I tend, I suppose we all do, you know, I tend to think, oh, I really want to do this, you know, this is, this, I know what I want to do. And that's when I start distrusting myself and thinking, just shut up and just listen and just get a feel for these people and try and be them. Yeah. Um, and then wait for some idea to come because it'll come. Yeah. Do you have an answer for when people ask you, what do you do? Well, I'll give, um, no, not really. I, well, I sort of say, look, you express yourself in your own natural way. And we want to get that happening in how people perceive your company. So mm. how do we get more of you and less of what's conventional yep. in the way you express yourself? Mm. You know, whether it's how people come into your offices or whether it's a piece of print or whether it's a film, whatever it is, how much more you can it be and how much less generic can it be? Yeah. yeah. Do, do you think people's idea of a designer is accurate or do you think you have to educate people on what design really means? Oh, that's a really good question. I think once you start thinking you're educating them, you're probably telling them <laughs> some old thing of yours. Um, one is most people have a fairly natural ability to project themselves. But I'll give you a, a little story. Is that all right? Yeah, please. Yeah. There's a, um, a Russian guy that I've worked with several times. And I've noticed that he has a particularly open mind. So we work with him on a bank in Russia which um, first off was a problem with what are we going to call it? Because it was called Life, which is the most ridiculous name for a bank. Yeah. Um, and uh, 
I went over there, went and visited quite a few banks and got a grasp that what this bank really does is help people in some sort of trouble. I mean, very, very sort of domestic trouble, like um, my motorbike's broken. Mm -hmm. It's going to cost me more money than I've got to repair it, but I need it to get to work. Mm. I mean, serious sort of problems like yeah. that. And they would give them relatively low interest loans mm -hmm. to get over the problem. And um, they had to deal with a lot of people coming in with fake problems, mm. try, trying to get some money. So it was quite a tricky situation. Mm. And the people inside the banks, usually young women, had to make a judgment of what kind of risk was involved. Yeah. Um, and they had a questionnaire which enabled the risk to be revealed in, in, uh, during the, the interview. But basically what they did was to go into partnership, in a sense, with the person with the problem. And so I thought, yeah, partnership, they take a risk because if uh, they're working for a bank, they get paid more if it's a successful loan. Yep. They get paid less if it's unsuccessful or mm -hmm. dangerous. Mm -hmm. So they're doing it together. Yeah. So I remember, because my family was Russian, therefore I was Russian right at the beginning of my life. Right, okay. I didn't want to go to school when I was five. My father put his arm around me out of this Russian word, which is pajom, mm -hmm. which means let's go. And he said it in a way as he pushed me through the front door. <laughs> so I was kind of listening to him and I found myself in the street on the way to school. So I thought this sort of moment of precipitation, if you like, was a great name. So I suggested they call the bank Pi Job. And this guy, because all the rest of the bank thought it was ridiculous, mm -hmm. this guy thought, perfect. And so it became Pi Job. It's now a successful Russian bank. Do you think it's important um, when naming a brand, naming a company, that there's a narrative or a story behind that? <sighs> you know, I can say yes and give you very good examples of it. And I can say, no, it doesn't really matter and give you very good examples of it. I think there are very few laws. Mm -hmm. I think it's a very intuitive business. Mm -hmm. And because people on the whole are uncomfortable about other people's intuition, mm -hmm. we tend to couch our recommendations in reasonableness. Yeah. Because if you give somebody an unreasonable solution, it's a bit scary for them. Yeah. But then I think of Bernard Shaw's wonderful remark, nothing is achieved by a reasonable man. Yeah. It's probably true. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's quite funny, isn't it? Because some, some business names like Carphone Warehouse started out describing what they do. Yep. And we now say Carphone Warehouse and you're not, no longer talking about a car phone. No, or warehouse. Yeah, exactly. And it's, and it's become its own thing with yeah. other elements of the yeah, brand. Yeah. That, 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 that. Well, there are very strange things. I mean, I can't imagine going into a boardroom and suggesting bird's eye as a, a name for a company. I mean, it's actually rather nice, but it was somebody's name, in fact, Clarence yeah. Birdseye. But there are some names which are completely absurd. Yeah. Um, but they exist. Yeah. Um, and I, so, so I suppose, could you talk us through your journey into design? You know, did you always think you'd be a designer? Did you, did you know that path was there for you as a child or did it come at a later date? Uh, well, I mean, I spent my youth avoiding work. Um, I spent all my education avoiding education. 
Um, I never passed any exam. I was always in trouble. Um, but there was one moment that I remember, which was when my mother first presented me with an orange. Mm-hmm. I must have been three. Mm-hmm. And here was this wonderful orange sphere, this globe, with this lovely texture. And I watched her peel it. And I looked at the wonderful white furry inside of the peel and the revelation of this segmented object. Yeah. And then she broke the segments, which was absolutely amazing, and gave me one. And then I put one in my mouth and the taste sort of exploded. And I think for me, that was, I didn't realize it, but I think for me, that was a moment when I realized that texture and taste and color and shape all work together. Mm. And it's a kind of poetic, uh, I mean, it's like music, you know. Mm. Um, and I never forgot that, I've still never forgotten that. Mm-hmm. But I think that I probably was a um, obsessively observant noticer. Um, I noticed absolutely everything. I was just obsessed with people's clothes, people's voices, people's shoes, the sound they made on what they were walking. I mean, I was just, and I still am. And I think to myself, well, of course, everybody is. There's nothing unusual about that. And then I think, well, other people have different kinds of preoccupations. Yeah. But I seem to be more interested in color and in fabric and in clothes and in what people looked like than the people that I was friends with. Mm. And when it came to the point of what do you want to do when you grow up, when I was, I suppose I was 14, and yeah. somebody asked the question, and I said I wanted to be a pilot, and they, <laughs> are ridiculous, and they said that means you've got to go to Cranfield. And I was felt very proud that I put my hand up and said pilot. It was complete ludicrous fantasy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I never thought about it again. I went on failing exams and being a, a, a naughty schoolboy, I suppose, but not getting anywhere. And eventually, for some reason, architecture appeared in my life. And I thought, that doesn't sound like hard work. <laughs> Lawyer sounds like hard work. Yeah. Doctor sounds like dangerous work. Architect, that sounds relatively, you know, wonderful. So um, my parents then thought I was going to be an architect. And they sent me off with a friend of theirs, a, a First World War general, weary, weird, weird guy. And I went with him for six weeks through France, looking at practically all French cathedrals. It was an astonishing experience. Mm. And from then on, I kind of understood the volume of buildings. And I started to notice buildings in the same way as I've been noticing people and clothes and nature and all the things that we have to look at in our lives. Mm. And then I um, managed to get into the AA to study architecture Mm -hmm. and found to my horror that it wasn't easy (laughs) and that it required a lot of technical ability, which I didn't have. And um, I sort of gravitated to people who were a bit like me um, and we spent more time in the cinema than in uh, studying architecture. So uh, I wasn't a successful architectural student <laughs> and left the AA. And then I think 
I don't know how to answer you. How I got into this thing of um, designing things, I think it was because I gravitated towards people who were designers mm. and then thought, well, I'd like to do that. And there was one particular moment where a friend of mine introduced me to typography. And again, I started being absorbed by all these different typefaces. And I met a guy who produced magazines. Yeah. Um, and I started talking to him about typefaces. And he said, well, would you like to design the cover of one of our magazines? Mm -hmm. I said, yes. You know, I'm, I'm quite quick to say yes. Yeah. So it was the Mux Spreader and Shifter. It was a magazine <laughs> for farmers. And I thought, muck shifting. And then I thought Cooper Black. Mm -hmm. And I wrote Muck Shifter and Spreader in Cooper Black. Yeah. It looked like Muck. I mean, it looked perfect. <laughs> and it was just the perfect cover for this magazine. Was this your first design job it ever then? First design first job ever. Yeah. ever. Mm -hmm. so apart from designing a, a poster for a local post office mm -hmm. when I was 10 for ice cream. <laughs> and what, what year would that have been? Um, Roughly. Oh, God, I was an evacuee. It was during the war. Yeah. But this thing with muckshifter and spreader, I suppose I would have been in my 20s, something 20s. like that. Yeah. But it gave me the sense that there was a way of looking that was appropriate. Mm -hmm. And although I was sort of surrounded with people with uh, admiration for different designers, and I was looking at books of people's work, um, and enormously impressed and, and, and in a way defeated. I was always defeated by looking at great people's work. Mm -hmm. I'd never be able to do work like that. How, how, how the hell do they do it? Yeah, um, but I kind of felt drawn to it. Um, and uh, I think I started imitating the work of people that I admired, mm -hmm. which is going to take me to the fourth room story, which I'm going to mm. tell you in a mm. while. Yeah. Um, and... Um, I had a phone call from a chap called James Main. Mm -hmm. I was working at home just doing these magazine covers. He asked me to do all his magazine covers yeah. after that first one. And James said, I'm, I'm running a small design company in Highgate. I bought a building in Camden Town. I've seen some of your work. I'd like you to join me. Mm -hmm. Well, it was fantastic for me. I couldn't believe it. Yeah. So suddenly we've got this company called Main Wolf that he owned, mm -hmm. him and his wife. I didn't own it but we got paid the same. It had my name. Yeah. We sat in the same office. It was fantastic. Mm. And that was really the start of my career mm. yeah. and the start of what became Wolf Olins. Okay. Amazing. Yeah. So you, you mentioned there briefly the, the four rooms of creativity. Yes. Uh, do you mind just telling us that for it's, the kind of viewers and or listeners? It's very simple. Yeah. Um, and I found when I've told this little fable mm -hmm. that a lot of people in various professions recognize themselves in it. Mm -hmm. And basically, I use a metaphor of four rooms. Yeah. Little house, two rooms upstairs, two rooms downstairs. Mm -hmm. And I would spend a lot of time in the top room on the left, mm -hmm. which I call the room of great work, which was being inspired by terrific designers. And in a sense, if I could produce work that looked as if they might have done it, mm -hmm. I would settle for that. I would think that's that's really good. I wasn't really interested in the clients. Yeah. I was interested in the work. And if it, if it looked as if maybe Alan Fletcher might have done it, I was just thinking that was, that was terrific. Mm -hmm. 
And I went on like that for, for quite a while. And then I met Wally Olins, mm -hmm. who um, was a serious grown-up. <laughs> and that was very appealing to me because I probably wasn't. I probably, I'm not yet even, actually. So he was logical. He was thorough. He'd run companies. And he was reasonable. Mm -hmm. So um, I abandoned the room of great work mm -hmm. and found myself being trained by Wally to explain the reason why. Mm -hmm. And it worked incredibly well because people preferred to deal with reasonable people yep. than unreasonable. I mean, some people like unreasonable people, <laughs> but on the whole, reason is quite a good way of selling yeah. a solution. And it took me quite a while to realize that the root of reasonableness mm -hmm. um, becomes dull, becomes mediocre, yep. because nearly everybody's asking the same questions and getting the same answers. And that's why you get so much work looking similar. Mm -hmm. That's why all banks look the same, all airlines look the same. Yep. You know, you put something on the tail dress the pilot up like a South American dictator and uh, put the name on the site. You know, you know what, yeah. what, what you would do for an airline without thinking. Yeah, yeah. So that described the second room for me. I didn't realize that these rooms existed. Yeah. And then the third room, I would call that the room of precedent. And it's full of designers who already know that what they do works. And yeah. so they go on doing it. And I found myself quite interested in that because I would tend to gravitate to repetition. Mm -hmm. This worked, so I'll do it again. Yep. And there was a sort of structure of habits that I didn't even question. Mm -hmm. But it's just, oh, this is, we do this, it's quicker, and it's fine, and it works, and everyone's happy, and all the rest of it. So I sort of knew that these three rooms were interesting. Mm -hmm. They were stupid not to go into the room of, free, of, of great work, not to look at great work that people are doing. Yep. But on the other hand, to see an office of people looking at the DAD annual for ideas isn't really a very creative thing to do. <laughs> and reason seemed to be a way of blinding one to something that was beyond reasonable, yep. that was went beyond reason. It wasn't reasonable to call a computer company Apple. Yeah. Um, and then I saw repetition as a bit of a trap. You know, you, you, you'd stumble into it, and, and there you were recommending something pretty similar to what you'd done before. Yeah. And then, for some reason, I realized that there is a fourth room, and that is a room that I called not knowing. And that is when you've been into the first three rooms, and you meet a client, and you understand that they want a more expressive way of, of being, mm -hmm. you trust something in you, which is your creativity. And it will always perform for you, especially if you discard what you're learning in the first three rooms yeah. and just trust something innate in you, which you've all got, um, and out pop solutions that are nothing to do with great work, nothing to do with reason, yeah. nothing to do with precedent. They've just a raw creativity. So I sort of wrote this as a little fable. Hmm. Um, and I often produce it when I'm talking to students. And I think people sort of recognize it in yeah. themselves. 
that there's something innately in them. That's not to say discard all the other stuff. No, of course. Yeah. But it's it's to trust yourself, trust your creativity, trust that childish ability to produce something unreasonably that's yours and that suits the situation. You know, when you get a direct hit, mm-hmm. when you give somebody something which they they would have had themselves if they'd have had your particular way of thinking, mm-hmm. then you think, oh, that's a bit, that's a well done job. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, do you think you have to go through each of those rooms to get to number four? Or do you think some people jump straight to number four? I think you know? some people jump straight to number four. I know I don't. I have to sort of mm. go through all four of the rooms. Whoops. Yeah. That's okay. Bashing your microphones around. <laughs> yeah, I, I, well, that's, that's not true. Some, sometimes you just get there. Yeah. And um, I, I hate to, uh, I hate to talk about the advantages of experience because I'm not sure they're there. Mm-hmm. I mean, in many ways, I, I don't trust my experience because it tries to tell me that I know what to do. Mm. I'd rather not know. Mm. But at the same time, I have a slightly sneaky way of referring to my experience. <laughs> And then I can either take its uh, opinion or, or not. Yeah. You, t- you talked earlier about um, the game is to kind of unlearn what you know. Yes. What do you, what do you mean by that? Um, it's the same thing, I think. It's just to trust something in yourself that doesn't come from knowledge, mm. that doesn't come from theory, that doesn't come from... Uh, it's, it's, this, it's the fourth room again. It doesn't come from any of those things. And I think, you know... I hate people who say, you know, the whole time. I've just said it three times. Um, it's trusting yourself mm-hmm. and trusting that creativity in other people mm-hmm. rather than slapping it down because it doesn't fit the answer that you may have had in your head. Yeah. And, and how do you when, you, when you work that way and you come up with a fourth room idea, yeah. how do you explain it and justify it? in a way that it's going to be well received? Um, I, I don't, I just do. Yeah. I can't yeah, ex- you just, yeah. Yeah, I can't really real. explain it. Mm. Mm-hmm. But I think that as in any kind of relationship, uh, trust is a foundation of it. Mm-hmm. And if you don't quite trust yourself, then you probably find other people don't trust you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, it's an interesting topic. I used to be an incremental liar. I used to lie to get out of trouble mm-hmm. at school. You know, if, if I'm late for a meeting, I would ask some ridiculous thing like the milkman <laughs> dropped a bottle of milk in the kitchen and, and you know, enormously <laughs> elaborate, totally unnecessary lies yeah. because I felt guilty. Yeah. And I then, I don't quite know how I discovered it. I think I did a workshop somewhere or something, but I suddenly realised that lying doesn't work mm-hmm. and it's actually it's actually a symptom of not trusting your own authenticity mm-hmm. and that honesty actually works and that I've been scrupulous about exaggeration mm-hmm. and lying and you know occasionally when you're explaining a job in the past and you elaborate it mm-hmm. to make it seem more appealing in some way mm-hmm. um, you don't want to tell ordinary stories yeah so you try and make your story extraordinary mm-hmm. which means a bit of fabrication 
And I've now stuck pretty rigidly to being pretty straightforward. Yeah. And everything works better. Mm. Yeah, I think I'd agree that I think when you're starting out on the design journey and you're having to justify design, you do, you, you build these narratives around things that don't need, they don't really need it in hindsight. And the more confident you get, yes, you're like, it works because it works. <laughs> you know, there's exactly that. And you also yeah. begin to appreciate what other people want want yeah and instead of seeing it as a sort of confrontation mm -hmm. yeah you know like you and the client are on different sides yeah. you're on the side of beauty and they're on the side of ugliness or some mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. some ridiculous um they can't get what you do yeah and once you drop that and you realize they're yeah. as creative as you are yeah and you're just partners in this yeah things start to work beautifully yeah, I think we, we spoke when we had a Skype call before this and we, we were talking about how often the designer's job is not to make something up for that person. It's to try and unearth kind of what's in them that they can't almost express themselves. No, absolutely. It's a discovery job. You're, a, yeah. you're an explorer and you're exploring them and yeah. you're making discoveries. Yeah. And then you weigh up the things that you discover and possibly find the one you think that suits them best, like a tailor. Like that. And uh, <laughs> this suits for you. This, so. suit, this suit, you look great in this. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. Where, where do you um, like? How do you kind of balance between design as art and design as? That's a really good yeah. question. You know, you're clearly an artistic person. You have. Um, I think it's. I think it's always a form of art. Yeah. It's. It's. You know, if, if you look around you. Yeah. You see beauty, or you see stuff that you think is beautiful or you think is ugly mm -hmm. personal opinions and stuff but it's stuff to appreciate and one of the things i find myself talking to students about now at this extraordinary elderly age i've reached is that imagination needs nourishing mm. and that the two things that nourish imagination one is to be uh, a noticer but to develop your noticing as if it's a muscle Mm -hmm. really exercise it, mm. really notice like an obsessive fool. And the second thing is to learn to be in other people's shoes mm -hmm. and to see, you know, somebody having problems getting off a bus and the bus driver not quite realizing that maybe somebody's having difficulty coming down the stairs Yeah, and he sets off. So, yeah, being a noticer and being willing to be in other people's shoes you will have nourished your imagination. And if your imagination is well-fed, it will perform for you. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you'll find yourself, it's almost like a, a separate being. Yeah, It will offer you things that you didn't think were possible. Mm -hmm. um, that's worked for me, and I think it works for most people. Mm. Um, now, now, jumping back to the four rooms, we, yeah. we, we've got quite a lot of um, young creatives that listen to this podcast yeah. and who are maybe just getting started in their creative career. Yeah. And um, I'm imagining for some of them who maybe feel like they're stuck in that first room, you know, yeah. have you any advice or tips to help progress to head towards, uh, to, to head up the stairs to number four? I think you've got to go through the agony. Yeah. I mean, admi admiration as a form of noticing. Mm hmm is very useful, but I think it's important to, when you look at work and gasp at its brilliance, um, you know, I can think of three people straight away. I think of Izzy Miyake, mm -hmm. and I gasp at his brilliance. Mm -hmm. I think of Inga Mora, who designs lights, 
Mm. That are just, I mean, there's one um, downstairs, which is a lamp bulb yeah. sitting on a little piece of marble yeah. with tiny little pewter figures worshipping light. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, when you see designers like Ingamora and like Izimiyaki mm-hmm. and like some of the great Italian product designers, mm-hmm. you feel a kind of awe, but you also feel permission. Yeah. And it's permission to go beyond what you thought restricted your territory or Mm. defined your territory. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so one of the great things about inspiration is that it is permission. And you can then go out of your own front door Mm -hmm. into the world and and, and, uh, notice and and learn. And that will feed your creativity and it will surprise you. You know, one of the great things about us designers is the surprise when something creative is produced by us, you know. Um, It's like cooking. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You just get carried away. You do, yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, if you hold your client as the person or the organisation that you're there to serve so that they serve the world better, Mm -hmm. it's a sort of double service thing you are serving your clients to serve their clients better Mm. Mm. and in doing so to make the world work better yeah um and if you feel those things i mean they're they're fairly lofty things you don't have to you don't have to get lofty about them Mm -hmm. but they're just implicit in the way you are Mm -hmm. you've become someone who doesn't want to harm people yeah and that will you'll find that reflecting itself in the way you work you know, you, I might go into a place and say, God, there's a receptionist sitting at a terrible desk, probably bored, rigid. Yeah. How can we change that? And you see yourself all the time thinking, how could that be better? Yeah. I'll tell you a funny story. Mm-hmm. Um, had a great client called 3i, mm-hmm. which was a, a name that uh, we were fortunate enough that it appeared. Um, and he was on the 10th floor a pretty ugly building. Mm-hmm. Well, there was a whole thing of why do senior people seem to be at the top of buildings mm-hmm. when they seem to be in them less often than the people who work harder. So, so, so but I was asking him about the building and how they'd got it. And did he feel it was an expressive building of anything? And, you know, he realised that he'd not really noticed the building. He'd not... You know, he's the chief executive. He'd not really, you know, the estates manager. It was a good deal. Mm -hmm. The building was available. We needed a building. All sorts of rather mediocre stories. Yeah. But then I asked him, what happens when people come to see you? Mm -hmm. And he said, what? And I said, what happens when people come to see you? He looked at me for a moment. And he said, well, I send Elizabeth down to get them. Mm Mm-hmm. So I said, um, okay, yes, I I think I remember that. Does she walk in front of them, behind them, or beside them? Mm -hmm. And he he was a very trusting man, so he wouldn't think it was an absurd question. But he said, I don't know. And in any case, I can't tell her what to do. Mm -hmm. So I said, John, let's just try a little experiment. We're going to go to the door of your office. And we're going to walk in together, mm-hmm. once with me in front of you, once with me behind you, once with me beside you. 
and then we're going to discuss what we felt. Yeah. Fine, he said, you know. So we did it. And he said, oh, walking beside you felt much better. Mm-hmm. Walking behind you, I thought your trousers weren't fitting very well. <laughs> uh, walking in front of you, I felt a bit exposed. Yeah. So walking beside you really worked. But I can't tell Elizabeth to walk beside people. So I said, John, how many visitors do you get a day? Uh, she said, well, sometimes none. Sometimes a group of four. Sometimes, on average, probably about four. Mm-hmm. Well, why don't you go down and meet them yourself? Mm-hmm. Because it's great if a CEO comes down, into reception, greets you, yeah. um, what's the word, disarms you, mm-hmm. shakes your hand, and you go up together. Mm-hmm. That's actually going to be much more interesting for you anyway. Mm-hmm. Every day from that moment on, that's what he did. Mm-hmm. And, and he still, when I see him, says, you know, it was a great moment. Mm-hmm. Because I used to sit there thinking I'm important, I'm the CEO, and people suddenly get produced like my PA's conjuring trick, you know. Well, here's somebody. And they'd see me in my office with my desk and my paintings and all the rest of it. But actually, going down and disarming people yeah, I get a much better meeting. Mm. So those kind of details, um, I think they're really important. Yeah, and even simple things like leaving a brochure in a leaflet rack mm-hmm. is very different from when you're seeing somebody off. Pick up the brochure yourself, give it to them, and say, "I think have a look at page forty-eight. I think you find that interesting." Yeah, and the brochure is a gift. Well, as if it's if it's sitting in the leaflet rack, you, it's devalued, and you're probably going to throw it away anyway. Yeah, and I think um, you know, hearing hearing that story, I think what's great about um, obviously the way your mind works is that you know I think great designers think more than just the facade that they're designing for. So you're yeah. you're obviously thinking, you know, when you're sitting down with that CEO, you're trying to understand the whole business, the whole problem, yeah. the whole challenge, yeah. and often it's not actually what we put pen to paper, uh, you know, I suppose back then you're you're thinking about service design before it was even called that, mm. you know. And if that's all there is. Yeah. There is only service design. Yeah. Um, yeah, that, that's that's. Uh, I've always thought that, actually. It's always somehow to do with, I'm just struggling with my mind because I'm trying to remember something else. Mm. Uh, it's coming back. <laughs> Here it is. <laughs> um, when we design pieces of print, uh-huh. There's always this thing of, is this talking? Mm-hmm. And who's written this? Mm-hmm. And nine times out of ten, you pick up a piece of print from a company and it's been written by a committee. Mm-hmm. It's not as good as a good short story. Yeah. Well, it should be as good as a good short story. Mm. Why isn't it as good as a good short story? Mm-hmm. And it's got photography in it, usually quite mediocre. Mm-hmm. Why? because somebody's tried to control the picture they want yeah. rather than to give a photographer a creative brief. Yeah. And if you give a photographer a creative brief, then don't put words all over it. So let photography Beautiful. live. Mm-hmm. Let language live. Let paper live. Mm-hmm. Let's have all these components free to express themselves, mm. even though they're a chorus. Yeah. And if you think of a piece of print as a piece of music, then think of the solos and think of the duets mm-hmm. and think of the different harmonies. Mm. Um, and suddenly 
you'll have a piece of print that's alive mm. rather than a sort of formulaic It's a really thing. nice way to think of it, isn't it? I really yeah. like that, yeah. Love that. And I mean, we have such amazing opportunities. Mm. Um, and instead of taking them, we produce a conventional format. Yeah. Well, no, it's not true, but I mean, because there are great designers, obviously. Yeah. But it, it, um, it minimizes the amount of designers that are great and maximizes the amount of designers who are a bit lazy mm. or who haven't been opened up. Yeah. They're still in their shells. Yeah, yeah. You you clearly have like a you know very clear vision and and able to come up with you know ideas yourself, but also really appreciate craft, photography, and design. And absolutely. How, how do you um, collaborate with different specialists now and and in your businesses? Um, that's a really good question. I, I was always criticised in Wolf Olin's for why do you want to use outside people the whole time? Aren't we good enough? Well, we had amazing people, and um, we normally did use them. I mean, Jerry Barney, who was one of the people who worked with me and Wolf Olins, mm -hmm. he came in to see me. He was the guy who made the British Rail symbol, Mil Milner Gray designed it, but he, yep. he always took a design and perfected it. Mm -hmm. He came in, he had a brush with one hair, <laughs> one hair, <laughs> and he drew his name in gill light, six point, you couldn't tell it hadn't been typeset. Wow. He had the steadiest of hands. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, you know, we had, and I still work with people whose skill I, 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 I'm in awe of. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, to be restricted by just 12 people with whom you work, or 300 people, however many, yeah. When you come across a poet like Roger McGough, of course you want to work with him, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know. Or you come across one of the writers in 26, which is a great writing co-op. Mm -hmm. Of course you want to work with them. Yeah. Because they will take writing or whatever it is to a height that stretches you, that goes beyond your own ability to conceive. Yeah. And I think... I think uh, the thing of being willing to be stretched and inspired by other people mm -hmm. always keeps you learning mm. and keeps you from formula yeah. and keeps you from thinking that you already know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I suppose, you know, you're world-renowned and, you know... You're, I don't know that that's true. <laughs> I'd say it is. I'd say it is. Let, let's go with that. Um, do, do you feel that you've reached, um, you know, do you feel successful? Do you feel you've accomplished what no. you set out to in life? And No. No. I don't, I don't at all. I mean, I just feel there's always a road ahead mm -hmm. and there always will be. Mm -hmm. So I never feel that I've arrived, mm. you know. And also, um, I've lost a lot of people in terms of people dying in my life. Mm. You know, Tony Evans, who is one of my greatest friends and a fantastic photographer mm -hmm. he had the most terrible cancer and he, and uh, he died I was there with him with his wife he died in our arms mm. um, but he was a giant and he was just wonderful to be with yeah um, so are so many people you know it, 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 it's great to be a human being mm -hmm. uh, I mean I don't know you guys but I'm enjoying this uh, <laughs> this meeting with you yeah 
and I'm interested in what you do. And you've told me one or two things about how you've merged your two companies. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Scotland is a wonderful country to live in. Yeah. So I bite I'm, very rainy. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm a I'm an appreciator. Yeah. Um, there isn't a day that goes by when I don't see or taste or hear something that makes me think, oh, God, it's wonderful. Yeah. I mean, maybe mm. it's a, a moment when a cat in the street looks at you and you think, oh, that's an interesting cat. <laughs> <laughs> or a pig. For, yeah. for those watching or listening, there's a, yeah, yeah, yeah. a really nice pig's head. Yeah, he's, he's, he hears everything I say. <laughs> smoky bacon. Yes, called sm- <laughs> yeah, it's called smoky bacon. He has kind of human teeth and a, and a pipe and he's staring at us. Yeah, right now. he's definitely um, bemused by this conversation. <laughs> Where did you find him? Where did he come from? Um, it was in an exhibition. Yeah. And the guy just makes these amazing animals. Some of them are huge. Yeah. A g- giraffe coming out of the wall. <laughs> wow. So that was about, that was a sort of tolerable one. Yeah. But I'm a, I'm a terrible sucker for wanting, I just think artists are so incredible. Yeah. Um, and artists are such uh, exam- exemplars of freedom. You know, you see people like Liechtenstein and you think, geez, God almighty, it's so wonderful. And our work flirts. I think you asked me, is it art? Is it design? Yeah. Are they different? Not really. Mm-hmm. We're, we're creating things that weren't there before. Yeah. And that's, that's the joy of it. And sometimes we're pleased with our work and sometimes we're horrified by it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, we've asked some of our listeners in the past or some of our um, guests in the past, um, the word brand is a word that gets thrown about and it's been thrown about for many years. I'd love know. to know what your description or uh, expression of what a brand is. Okay. <laughs> no, it's not the easiest of questions, but no. Uh, but I mean, I I found myself talking about it to people quite a bit, mm-hmm. yeah. and of course, it, it it came from burning a mark in a cow's rump. Yeah, um, and it was hot. Yeah, and that's why it was called brand. Yeah, uh, originally, but now I think when I hear people like myself which I don't, but when I hear, oh God, there was a beautiful seagull flying out of the window, which reminds me of something else I've got to tell you. <laughs> um, um, I think brands are results. Mm-hmm. They are the result of how a company behaves mm-hmm. and how you notice that aspect of their behavior, mm-hmm. which may be a pack, mm-hmm. which may be their reception if you deal with them. Yeah. It could be anything. Companies express themselves they express their identities. Mm-hmm. And as a result, people respond to whatever they do in certain ways. Yeah, And that response, which they hold as their memory, mm-hmm. is what the brand is. Great. So the brand is a result of how they look, mm-hmm. a result of how they treat people, yeah. a result of how they make you feel, mm-hmm. a result of how you think they make other people feel. A result of your prejudices about them. Yeah, all those things, their results. So once I got it clear in my mind that we don't make brands, yeah, we stimulate what other people turn into brands. Yeah, and brands are what we have as a portfolio of our memories of companies, yeah. people, yeah. 
moments, whatever. Yeah. Once you liberate yourself from being responsible mm-hmm. for creating a brand and recognize that you're contributing to the result, yeah. brands are made by people. Mm. Yeah, I love it. Yeah. yeah. That's yeah. how it seems to me. Yeah, I think that's Now, it. the seagull. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us. <laughs> well, it was a metaphor. You know, I worked very happily with Wally Olens. Yeah. Um, our sense of humor was really our bond. Mm-hmm. He was a very intelligent, extremely well-educated man. Mm-hmm. I was a reasonably intelligent, extremely poorly educated man. <laughs> and we got along fine. Mm-hmm. And... Um, Why did it break up? I think because I wanted to push into territories which made their view of exit strategy difficult. In other words, when they got to exit strategy, Mm -hmm. they got to the point. I mean, they they were always hovering, or we were always hovering on the border between boldness and arrogance. Yeah. Um. I detested arrogance. I respected boldness. Mm -hmm. So I tried to keep us on the right side of that line. When they started to think of exit strategy, Mm -hmm. uh, let me not, let me, I'm quite a greedy person. I'm quite a spendthrift. Mm -hmm. um, But I've never treated money with the kind of respect that you really do need to treat it if you're building a business. Yeah. I'm, I'm, my relationship with money is slightly peculiar. Mm-hmm. It's why I've never made very much. But when I thought of the metaphor that would suit Wally and me, I thought that he flew like a duck. Yep. He went from this pool to that pool, straight there. Mm-hmm. I fly like a seagull. <laughs> so I'm interested in enjoying the thermals. Mm-hmm. I'm interested in using the wind to take me in the direction that I don't know where it's going to end up. Yep. So a duck and the seagull are extremely different, mm-hmm. probably, but certainly in the way they fly. Yeah. And I could watch seagulls all day. Mm-hmm. I think their mastery of flight is beautiful. Mm-hmm. And ducks, they just use flying because mm-hmm. they've got to get somewhere. Seagulls are also f- very sneaky. Yes. Good at stealing yeah. chips. Yeah. <laughs> and Wally was a very potent duck. I mean, you know. We're going to do some work in Germany. Next thing, we're doing work in Germany. Yeah. Because he flew there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I would have been hovering over the White Cliffs of Dover, <laughs> enjoying the thermals. But it was an interesting. It was an interesting metaphor. Yeah. And it was why, in a way, we sort of became incompatible. And since he was running the business, mm-hmm. and I was leading the business. Yeah. Uh, running the business won, and I, I, I was gone. Yeah. Yeah. What was it like to be a part of, um, you know, when you were, in, were there and, and in its height, I suppose? Well, when it was going wrong. <laughs> before. When it, yeah. uh, but when it was going right. When it was, yeah, when, you, when the, the oh, decade was, before, you know. It was, yeah. it was really good. Mm. You know, we had this um, relationship with Pentagram in a way mm. where I thought of them as masters of how design is. And I thought of us as pioneers of how design might be. Mm. So we were very, very different. We were much more eclectic than they were. They were much more classic, Mm -hmm. great designers. I still have a wonderful relationship and huge respect 
for most of the people there. And Alan was a tremendous friend of mine. Mm -hmm. I would say I talked about Inga Mora. I talked about Izimiyaki. Mm -hmm. I talked about uh, Frank Geary. I would put Alan Fletcher in that category yeah. of a master, really, but with a sense of humor and a tremendous sense of wit. He was a terrific friend uh, and a great loss to me when when, when he um, died. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Great. Um, I mean, Michael, we could uh, listen to you all day. Um, I don't think you could. <laughs> but I'm very conscious of your time having okay. invited us into your home. So I suppose um, as a final question, yeah. um, looking back on your career, um, if you could now talk to your younger self or give advice to someone starting out in the creative industries, is there a sort of um, one pearl of wisdom that you can leave us with today that um, you would have liked to have given yourself um, at that point when you when you started out? Okay. I, you wrote that down, so I sort of prepared myself mm. for that question a little <laughs> bit. I think that I would say recognize that your creativity is a m sort of metamorphosis from what you notice and mm -hmm. that take noticing and being in other people's shoes really seriously mm -hmm. because they are what are going to nourish you. Mm -hmm. They are the ingredients that bubble into your imagination. Yeah. If you if you're not a noticer, your imagination has no nourishment. So notice that you're noticing, <laughs> mm -hmm. and um, and just see how much of life doesn't work terribly well for people yeah. of all ages. Yeah, you know, it's just you know, so many things like wheelchairs, taps, mm -hmm. light switches, all these things that could be much more glorious than they are. Yeah, and are pretty dull. Mm -hmm. So the world is still a, a, a wonderfully challenging place to do all those things, but at the same time, bear in mind that we are destroying our planet. Yeah. Bear in mind that we're losing species of animals. Bear in mind that we're tolerating appalling poverty. Mm -hmm. Bear in mind that we're living in a world where two Arab countries are destroying Yemen mm -hmm. and causing cancer. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so bear in mind that we're politically inept sure. and we can't organize ourselves and we can't even build decent homes for ourselves. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of challenges. And in a way, that's what's wonderful. And that's why it's worth being a designer. Mm. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. Very inspiring, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> thank you so much. No, um, my pleasure. Uh, and thank you to everyone who's listening. If you like what you're hearing and you want to support the podcast, please rate us and write a review to help us get the word out. If you've been listening on Spotify or Google Podcasts, you can also watch the full version on YouTube. Um, we'll also post a picture of the pig. What was the name of the pig, Lewis? Smoky Bacon. Smoky Bacon will be in the comments somewhere <laughs> below. So if you want to see him, you can have a look down below. Um, we publish a new episode on the last Monday of every month, so make sure you're subscribed um, so you don't miss out. Uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks, Michael. Well, thank you. Thank, thank you. you.